God, we're just so grateful uh, to be able to gather together this morning to worship you and to praise you, to be together as a church. Lord, I just pray that as we do everything that we do here this morning, Lord, that the motivation behind it would not just be routine. It would not just be ritual or what we do. But Lord, there would be truly an affection for you underneath our singing. An affection for you underneath the listening of the word of God and, and teaching from it. The, I pray for those in the kids' room and, uh, who are teaching the kids that, Lord, there'd be an affection underneath what they're doing as they teach those kiddos about Jesus. Lord, as we're going to see in our text this morning, it's so easy for us just to let the routine of religion to take over. So, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to evaluate our hearts and that, Lord, what we do here this morning would be motivated by our love for you. And I pray that for our church and everything that we do, Lord. Lord, would you help us to be a church, to be a people that love you, people who give all of ourselves to you, people who care about the things that you care about, and people who love the things that you love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was growing up, uh, I loved high school. I just, I loved it. I played on the football team, had great friends. High school was a great experience for me. And then I got to college, and I just didn't really like college. Just as soon as I got there, I wanted to get out of there as fast as possible. And so I, I did everything I could to graduate early. I took classes over the summers. I got credit for internships. And I actually did. I ended up graduating from college a year early. But when I was trying to do all of I could to get out of college and just graduate, there was one class standing in my way. And that class was Hebrew 2. All right, so I was going to a Bible college. I was getting a degree in biblical studies. And so I'd taken Hebrew 1. I needed Hebrew 2 to graduate. And they weren't offering it when I needed it so I could graduate early. And the professor would not do an independent study, despite my repeated asks of him to do that. He wouldn't do it. But then I discovered something. I discovered some fine print in our student handbook that said if a student had an overseas experience while they were in college, within the language that they were learning, that they could submit an academic appeal and they could argue that that overseas experience had the educational value equivalent to that class and thus get credit for the class. Well, it just so happened during my college years, I had actually taken a semester off, and I, during that semester, I had spent two weeks in Israel, where they don't speak biblical Hebrew anymore. It's modern Hebrew. And so we didn't learn any biblical Hebrew on this trip to Israel, but you better believe I was going to give this a try. So I had to write up this long appeal explaining the trip and the educational value and basically justify why this trip would be equivalent to this class. And for me to get this appeal approved, I had to get three 
signatures, okay? So I had to get the professor who taught the class, he had to sign off on it. Uh, I had to get the department chair to sign off on it, and then I had to eventually get the academic dean to sign off on it. Now, I was told, if you got the professor and you got the department chair, the academic dean would rubber stamp this thing. So, okay, I need, I need two signatures to get this done. And so I wrote up this whole long thing, and I was really nervous because I knew, I knew I should not win this appeal, okay? So I set up a meeting with the professor. I go to meet with him. He's a really nice guy, but I knew, I knew he wasn't going to go for this. And so I, I hand him the appeal so he can read through it. We're sitting there, and he's... He's kind of thumbing through the pages, chuckling to himself. And uh, I'm dead serious. This is what he tells me. He looks at me in the eye and he says, Alan, I'm going to sign this just so you go to the department chair and have this meeting because that's not going to be fun for you. And he signs it and gives it back to me. And I'm like, you don't know me. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm totally fine going to that department chair and having an awkward meeting. One down, one to go. So I got my signature. So I set up a meeting with the department chair, and I was really nervous. I've had a class with this guy, and he, he was kind of a no-nonsense kind of guy. And so we set up the meeting for 5 p.m. right at the end of the day, and I remember I go to his office, and he's on the phone, and he's kind of rushing to get out the door. So I walk into his office, we had an appointment, I had the appeal in my hand, and he's kind of rushing, he's on the phone, he's flustered, he sees me, he grabs the paper, he sees that my professor signed off on it, throws his signature on it, hands it back to me, and I wasn't even in his office for a minute. I, 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 I got it back, I walked out, and I'm like, I got my two signatures. And of course... The academic dean, he rubber stamped that thing, and I got credit for Hebrew too, and I graduated early from my college. Now, here's the thing. Well, first of all, let me just say this. My, my, my parents are in this room, and this, this may be the first time they've heard this story. I'm not sure. So I did have to take three more years of Hebrew in seminary, okay? And I didn't wiggle out of those ones, so I think we're good. I think we're good. But, but here's the thing. Uh, my goal in this was to get the credits that I needed to graduate early. It didn't matter to me how it was done, and it did not matter to me if I learned what I needed to learn. The actual goal, the actual purpose of that class and that graduation requirement was for me to learn the language so I could apply that knowledge in a later vocation. That's the actual purpose. But I didn't care about the true purpose. I just cared about getting the credits. And don't we live a lot of life that way? Uh, how easy is it to, to go to work, just kind of check off the tasks I need to get checked off, punch out at five, and not really care about the true goals or the true purpose of the company that I work for. I just want the paycheck. Or how many times have I gone to the gym and kind of, you know, just kind of hit the weights but not really, walked on the treadmill watching Sports Center, didn't really break a sweat, and left, right? I don't care about getting in shape. What I care about is being able to say, yeah, I went to the gym today. I think many of us are tempted to live the Christian life this way. Checking off the things that we should do as Christians, but losing sight of the entire purpose of it. Last week, we started a new series called Jesus and the Outsider. 
and we study Jesus' words to his disciples when he had appeared to them after his resurrection in Luke 24. And what we saw Jesus do was give the church a very specific mission. He, he sent his disciples, said, you're going to start the church. Here's what I need you to do. And that I need you to proclaim to all nations that repentance and forgiveness of sins is available in the name of Jesus. That's the mission. So all of us, due to our sin, have found ourselves on the outside of God's kingdom, but have been made insiders through Christ. We've been saved and forgiven of our sins through what Christ did for us. And so now as insiders, as a part of the church, God has sent us on a mission to the outsiders to proclaim the name of Jesus. God wants the insiders to be focused on going to the outsiders so that they can hear how they become insiders. That's the mission of the church. And so we started this series because we want to study how Jesus did this. You know, when Jesus came before his death and resurrection, he modeled this for us. He modeled what it looks like to go after the outsiders. And so one of the things Jesus was known for was disrupting the religious norm of the day. So the problem with religion is that religion can tempt us to be more concerned about protecting the inside than trying to get outsiders in. And as we study Jesus' encounter with both insiders and outsiders, we're going to be forced to confront our own religious impulses to keep the outsider out. And so this morning, we're going to read a short encounter Jesus had with both insiders and outsiders in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. And here's what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to confront the religion of the insiders and how they seem to care more about getting credit for their religious propriety more than just the actual mission and purpose that God had for his people. But let me say it. This is what we're going to see Jesus do in Matthew 9. He's going to confront the religion of the insiders and how they seem to care more about getting credit for their religious propriety than the actual mission, the actual purpose of what God has for his people. So let's read that. Matthew chapter 9. I'm just going to read verses 9 to 13. Short passage today. Let's read this together. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. Other gospels call him Levi. Sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, this is Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus here encounters both insiders and outsiders. 
right? This is where uh, Jesus, he's calling Matthew to be one of his disciples. And Matthew is a tax collector, Okay, tax collectors were hated during this time because they were typically Jews who had become employed by the Roman government to collect taxes. And they were known for collecting a little more than they actually had to give to the Roman government and pocketing the profit. And to the most conservative Jews of the day, the Pharisees and others, they hated the tax collectors because they were traitors. Right? They were Jews who started working for the Romans, and so they could not stand these guys. And so here we see Jesus is reclining at a table with Matthew. Uh, the Gospel of Luke tells us that this is at Matthew's house, and there are other sinners there with them. And so let me, let me just kind of help us understand what the text means when it says sinners. All right? I'm going to actually give you the lexical definition of the word here for sinner. The, the Greek word here is hermartalos. Okay, and so that's sinner, and here's the lexical definition. It's outsiders of those who did not observe the law in detail and therefore were shunned by observers of traditional precepts. So you can see here, who's Jesus eating with? He's eating with the outsiders, the people that the religious Jews or the conservative ones of the day did not want to be around. And so Jesus, along with some of his disciples, are enjoying dinner with these people. And the Pharisees, the religious in crowd, they just had to say something, right? They, they just couldn't let this one go. Why does your teacher eat with these people, these outsiders? And look at Jesus' response in verses 12 and 13. It says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So we're going to come back to the majority of this passage a, a bit later. First, let's, let's do what Jesus told us to do. Let's go learn what it means when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What, what, what does that mean? Well, what Jesus is doing here, he's quoting from the Old Testament. And specifically, he's quoting from the book of Hosea. So Hosea was a prophet that was sent by God to the northern kingdom of Israel. So after King Solomon, all right, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. All right, and so Hosea is a prophet of God sent to the northern kingdom to, to preach God's word to them, to call them to repentance, and this was a relatively secure time in the northern kingdom. All of their enemies were kind of on other battlefronts. So this was a time of expansion and prosperity for the northern kingdom. And so they were comfortable. And what happened in their comfort is syncretism started to happen. Secretism is, is when we allow ver other various religions or philosophies or worldviews or cultic practices to kind of seep into what we believe about God and merge with our beliefs about God. And, and so this is what was happening in the northern kingdom of Israel, and it was just causing great unfaithfulness to God. And so Hosea is sent to call them to repentance. And so the book of Hosea... What it does, if you read it, it, it compares Israel's relationship with God like marrying a prostitute. 
That's the imagery that Hosea uses. Although they're betrothed to one another, God and his people, the prostitute, God's people, is always being unfaithful, always going to another guy. And this is what God said Israel was like when it comes to their faithfulness to him during this time. So he sends Hosea, and I want you to see what Hosea says in chapter 4. So this is Hosea, I'm sorry, chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. So this is God speaking through Hosea. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? Think northern kingdom. What shall I do with you, O Judah? Think southern kingdom. Your love is like a morning cloud. Like the dew that goes away early. It's there for a bit. Then the sun comes out and it's gone. Therefore I have hewn them in by the prophets I have slain them by the words of my mouth and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I, here it is, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Our Bibles translate this in Matthew as I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I think the better translation is I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. What God is saying here is, I want your love. I want the affection of your heart, not your religion. Your religion is meant to stir up your love and affection and obedience to me. But if there is no love for me in your religion, in your burnt offerings, in your Bible reading, in your praying, in your church going, in all of that, if there is no love for me in that, then it means nothing. God is saying, I want you. I don't want your rituals. I want you. This is all over the Old Testament. The idea that God does not want our religion, he wants our love, and our religion is just a way that our love is stirred up for God. We could go to Amos. Amos was a prophet at the same time as Hosea, sent to the northern kingdom as well to preach basically the same message. Look at what Amos says in chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. Look at this. Strong language here. This is God speaking. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is the same message we read from Hosea. You're doing all this religious stuff for me, but you do not love me and you do not care for the things that I care for. We can go to Micah, another prophet sent to the southern kingdom, during the reign of Hezekiah, Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8, same thing. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? 
He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? God, what do you want from me? Uh, what, what rituals can I do? What, what can I do to demonstrate my faithfulness to you? And God says, I want you. I want your heart. I want you to care about what I care about. I want you to love me and I want you to walk humbly with me. I mean, have we made the case from the Old Testament yet? I mean, did we prove this, that this is what God wants? Let's do one more. First Samuel chapter 15. Right, this is during the reign of King Saul. And what God does is he instructs Saul to go and eliminate the Amalekites and destroy everything in their village. And so Saul goes and he defeats the Amalekites, but what he ends up doing is bringing back with him the best of their livestock. He disobeyed God's command in this moment. And so Samuel, who was a prophet at the time, confronts Saul on this, saying, hey, why did you disobey God and bring back the best of the livestock? Look at what Saul says. 1 Samuel verse, chapter 15, verses 15 to 16. Saul answered to Samuel, look, the troops brought them from the Amalekites. Don't blame me, blame my subordinates. The troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep, goats, and cattle. Look at this, in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord, your God. But we destroyed the rest, right? We, yeah, we, we didn't do exactly what he said, but we're going we're gonna to use this for worship. Stop, explained Samuel. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Jump down to verse 22 and 23 in 1 Samuel 15. This is Samuel talking. Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. Saul, God doesn't want your burnt offerings. He could care less if you spared the best so you could do a sacrifice. You disobeyed his word. Saul, God wants you. He wants your whole heart. Everything. That's what God wants. So, Let's take all of that, go back to Matthew 9, where Jesus is having dinner with some sinners. And the Pharisees, who are proud of their religious acumen, questioned the integrity of Jesus and the disciples for spending time with these kinds of people. And Jesus says, go learn what this means. Hey, go read your Bible. I desire mercy or I like the translation better, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Listen, Pharisees, you guys have studied the scriptures more than anyone. You've never missed a ritual feast or a proper burnt offering. You tithe great sums of money. You recite the right prayers and you never miss worship at the synagogue. But somehow and some way through all of that, you have missed the point of it all. You have checked off every box, but you have missed the purpose. You don't love me. You don't care about the things that I care about. You just care about the credit. And so it boils down to this, Pharisees. That those who are well, those who are well, have no need of a physician, 
but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. These people at the table, these are the people that I care about. These are the people that I'm here for. And because you don't care about the things that I care about, look, your religion is meaningless. In fact, if we want to use the language from Amos, which is strong language, he says, I hate it. Because you don't care about what I care about. Your religion is actually not about me. It's about you. And I'll just say, if you're, if you're here and you've, you've not trusted Christ as your Savior, I want you to know that this is who Jesus is and he cares for you. He's not waiting for you to get your life together so you can have a seat at the table. Jesus didn't come for those who are qualified. It's, it's very clear. And everyone in here who follows Jesus, our testimonies reflect the fact that Jesus came for those who are very unqualified. And he took your place on the cross so you could have forgiveness of sins. And he is offering his grace and his mercy to you. The question is, will you accept it? And for those of us who do know Jesus, there are two responses that I want to exhort all of us to have to Jesus' example here in Matthew 9. Two responses I want us to take away. Here's the first one. I don't want us to scoff at the Pharisees. It's very easy to do that. I don't want us to scoff at the Pharisees, but I want us to look to see if we have any Pharisee in us. In our own hearts, in us as a church corporately together. In the example here in Matthew 9 and in the examples that I read from the Old Testament, we see that when we reach a certain comfort level with our religion, we can forget its purpose. Uh, Andy Stanley says that the gravitational pull of the church will always be to the insiders and not the outsiders. And the reason for this is because what happens when the church becomes our primary social circle, when we find that comfort level, we find comfort in the predictability of the insiders and we don't like the unpredictability of the outsiders. In our own lives and even during our Sunday morning gatherings as a church, we can subconsciously gravitate towards insiders and not outsiders because it's just it's more comfortable to do it that way. And so we need to find the Pharisee in all of us. And what we need to do when we find that inside of us, what we need to do is we need to put our religion in its place. It has a place. Religion is a means to an end. And that is to know God, to love God, to worship and serve God, and to humbly walk with God. And one of the most telling ways where we can evaluate if our religion is out of place or not in our lives is by asking ourselves the question, do I care about the things that God cares about? Last week, I devoted the whole sermon to unpacking the fact that the whole Bible points to this reality that what God cares about is his glory through saving people. His glory through bringing in outsiders. 
And the mission that he is giving the church is to go after those outsiders proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. We devoted the whole sermon to that. And so here's our question. Does all of our religious activity and our spiritual practices and disciplines, do those things mold our hearts into caring for what Jesus cares for? Or does our religion actually lead us away from that? You know, it's kind of like a decked out Jeep Wrangler. You know, you see those big Jeep Wranglers on the road and, you know, they've been modified as if like they're going to go off-roading in the next world war. And they've got the jacked up suspension and the big tires and the winch up front and the extra gas cans and floodlights and all of that stuff just decked out. But the crazy thing is, especially around here in Northern Virginia, is you'll see those and they're spotless. There's not a scratch on those things, right? And it's like the owners would would never even think of taking their Jeep that they've invested all this money into off-roading, right? What if it gets dirty? What if I scratch it, right? And that makes no sense at all. Why would you put all of this equipment on your Jeep and never use it for its intended purpose? The only explanation is you just like the look of it. It looks cool to you, so you throw it all on there. Can't, Can't religion just be the same way? We do all these things, we spend time in the Bible, we go to church, we pray, we do service projects, we do all of these things. But if we don't use these things to love God, to walk with God, to care about the things that God cares about, and to actually do the things that he's called us to do, then it's all a waste. I, I guess we're doing it so we look like we do those things. Where can we identify with the Pharisees Where can we find the Pharisee that lives in our hearts that pulls us away from engaging the outsider? Because we've been called to go after the outsider and we need to be thinking about how our religion and our spiritual practices encourage that call, not get in the way of it. And here's the second response that I want us to have to this is I want us to follow Jesus' example and recapture hospitality. Follow Jesus' example and recapture hospitality. Man, this, this is a challenge here in Northern Virginia. We are, we are everyone. We're all so busy and time is so scarce. But I want you to see that in our text this morning, the, the Pharisees weren't as bothered that Jesus would interact with the tax collectors and sinners. What made the scene even more scandalous to the Pharisees was that Jesus was at Matthew's house, house, reclining at his table and enjoying good food and good drink with them. Right to, to share a meal with someone is a sign of intimacy, closeness, connection, sharing life. This wasn't a quick small talk as you ran into someone at the grocery store. This was intentional. Let's enjoy a meal, several hours. Let's get to know one another type of interaction. And our hurried social media trained relationships with people today, we're forgetting how to do this. I think hospitality is a spiritual discipline that we need to be intentional about reintroducing into our lives. Spending intentional time with people who do not know Jesus. Sharing a meal, getting to know their story, caring for their souls, learning from their experiences, and speaking the message to them that we have been called to deliver. 
Jesus says here in Matthew 9 that he came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And the question for us is, do we give any hospitable priority to outsiders or do we just reserve it for the insiders? That's a tough question, I think, for our church to answer. How, How can we begin to specifically use hospitality as a strategy in our mission to reach the outsiders? How can we do that here on Sunday morning? As we gather here together for our worship service on Sunday morning, how can we all be devoted to making this a hospitable environment? How can we all be devoted to making this a place where when outsiders come in, they feel welcomed and desired and like we want them to be here. And that there are people here who want to learn their names and want to learn their stories and want to actually engage them beyond just saying hi. I mean, how can we craft an experience here on Sunday morning where outsiders feel comfortable with us, just like those sinners and tax collectors felt comfortable with the God of the universe reclining at their table? What would it look like if all of us as individual members of the church were were just devoted to this and said things like, man, I'm going to take personal responsibility as a member of this church to making Sunday morning a hospitable environment. I'm going to get there early. I'm going to make sure there are people in the lobby when the guests arrive. I'm going to learn names and try to remember them, right? I'm going to be prayerful about this because I understand that on Sunday mornings we have a unique experience to show this kind of love to those who are on outside when they visit us, right? These are the questions that I want us to be wrestling with through this series as a church over the sermon series, but also we're gonna be wrestling with some of these questions in our community groups here soon. But Grace Hill, Jesus did not come for the well. He came for the sick. And we've been called to the same mission. And you know what? The person that we all most identify with in this story is not the Pharisee. It's not the Pharisee. As followers of Jesus, we most identify with the sinners reclining at the table with Jesus. This is what we're primarily going to reflect on next week, in our sermon next week. But I just want us to understand this morning that we go after outsiders because all of us at one point was an outsider. And Jesus, in his grace and his mercy, pursued us. He desired to be with us. He gave his life for us. He died for us so that we could be reconciled to God. All we have is Christ. And that is who we have to offer the world. I think the Bible is very clear that there is nothing more potent that we could do to worship and glorify our God than going after the outsiders that he so deeply loves, just like he came after us. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning, as we reflect on Matthew chapter 9, and as we think about this scene of Jesus, the Son of God, reclining at a table with 
those the religious community would never associate with. Lord, it is such a beautiful picture. Because, Lord, all of us belong at that table. Lord, we, we have sinned against you. When it comes to communing with you, when it comes to being reconciled with you, when it comes to having a relationship, and Lord, especially when it comes, Lord, to having forgiveness of sins, this is not something that we deserve. We deserve to be on the outside. But Lord, in your grace and in your mercy, you brought us in through Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised again. So, Lord, I just continue to pray for our church that, Lord, as we continue to think about this and study these texts and look at the example of Jesus, Lord, I pray, Father, that you would help us, help us, Lord, to be a church that is committed, passionate, faithful to the mission to go after the outsider. And, Lord, not because that we're trying to check the box off, not because it's just this kind of rote obedience where we just do what we're told and it has nothing to do with our affection for you. But Lord, I pray that you would give us a steadfast love for you that would lead us into the mission of those that you love. So Lord, we just ask for your spirit's help in this. And Lord, we just pray as we end our time in song that you would be honored and you'd be glorified. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name.